You're listening to The Spear, a podcast about the combat experience from the Modern War Institute at West Point. More than 100 meters outside the village, you were definitely getting in a firefight. My first patrol I took, we had a far ambush. And then it was just woof, a, a huge explosion. The primary threat was RKG-3 grenades, light machine guns and AK-47s, that kind of thing. Small arms fire, RPG fire. Explosively formed penetrators. Suicide bombs. And then that's about the time that the third IED went off. And that's when another grenade comes spinning over the side of the wall. And it's at that point the IED chain detonates. There was enemy in the wire. There was all these Humvees on fire. It, it was truly bullets flying from every angle that, that you could see. I open the door and look outside, and all I see is muzzle flashes. There's a guy on top with a 240, and the rounds pass right past his head. At that point, our instincts kicked in. One, one pilot on the controls, the other pilot was using his M4 to engage single-man targets on the ground. You're shooting at everything. It was a fight. Welcome to The Spear, the podcast about the combat experience, brought to you by the Modern War Institute at West Point. I'm your host, Tim Heck, and today we have a different episode. Most episodes, there are gunfights, IEDs, ambushes, airstrikes. Today, we talk to a different side of the war. I have two guests here, Ginger Perkins and Cindy Wesley, who are spouses. And while we don't traditionally cover their stories, this is important, especially as we think about combat operations and the whole soldier. So I'd like to start by introducing them and thanking you all both for being here on The Spear. So Ginger, we'll start with you. Thank you, Tim, for inviting us today. I'm Ginger Perkins. I've been married 42 years to David. And during this time, being in the military 38 years, we have two children, and they followed their father's footsteps and the family business into the military. Okay. Did you have a military background? I did not. How did you meet David? I grew up in New Jersey. I was born in Manhattan and went to school in New Jersey. And at that time, 1980, they used to ship cadets down to girls' colleges. So I met him there. And during our tours, I was able to work for the military and just enjoyed it immensely. We're going to talk about the Thunder Run, the invasion of Iraq, 2003. What was David's role? for that? And what was your role at the same time? David was the 2nd Brigade commander. When they entered Kuwait, he became the 2nd Brigade combat team commander. So that included more of the battalion units. And that's with the 3rd Infantry Division? Correct. And so my position, my volunteer position, was the 2nd uh, Brigade FRG leader, Family Readiness Group leader. Cindy? What about your background? Well, I was raised uh, an Army brat, was born in Fort Benning, Georgia. So I've been part of the Army my entire life until the last two years after Eric retired. So my husband was in the Army for 34 years, and we've been married this summer 34 years. So just we married a couple years after he had um entered the army as a lieutenant. My dad was in the army, as I said, and um, he had a lifelong career. So that's kind of all I've ever known, honestly. And it was a great life. What was Eric's role 
in 2003? He was the um, second brigade executive officer. I was an FRG volunteer. For the listeners that might not understand the structure of the FRG, what was the purpose, what was the mission in 2nd Brigade's FRG at the time? So we had soldiers that were left behind with us, and they were the rear detachment. So they really were the lead. And we had Captain Enos and Sergeant First Class Foreign Shell. Then the rest were volunteers. And so for us as leaders, as uh, spouses, to build camaraderie, we wanted to get to know the spouses. We wanted to get to know the families before a crisis happened. So we did have uh, treasurers at the time, but really during, especially during the deployment and then the invasion, it really just came down to camaraderie, building trust, keeping those spouses and families active and engaged and knowing what was going on. In combat units, there's a lot of talk about team building and how important that was in time together and doing sets and reps. How long were your husbands in command and by an extension you as part of the command team in place prior to the deployment to Kuwait? So Dave took command prior to 9-11. So it was about a year and a half that we were able to build this team. We tried to have fun events we were able to do a pre-deployment ball. So we're able to pull in young spouses, spouses that may not go to some of the other events that we would have. We also did do uh, casualty training. We did steering committee meetings. We also, though, did socials. We tried to pull together spouses that might not come out for other things. So then when the soldiers did deploy we had an activity called Walk to Kuwait and Back. It was 14,190 miles to and back. We wanted it to be a psyops, psychological, mm-hmm. to show that the soldiers were coming back. We would get together every Tuesday and walk around the track with our rear detachment commander and the NCOIC. And if the spouses could not um, if they had an issue and they could not solve the issue at that time, then they would go and meet at the brigade headquarters. But we were able to get to know all the spouses in the brigade during that time and have fun events. Once the division joined us, well, then joined them over in Kuwait prior to the invasion, we changed that morale booster to walk to Iraq and back, added 800 miles to that so they knew and then we had a mile-a-meter uh, right there at the entrance of post, and people could log in their miles however they did it, if they were going swimming, if they were walking on the treadmill, doing yoga, anything that would keep them active and involved. And Cindy, in your role, how did you interact with, with Ginger at the time? So Eric was, he, we had been actually at Fort Stewart. This is interesting. We had already, that was, we had already been there five years in the division, which is a long time right after CGSC. And for the most part, other than a short stint um, at um, the division headquarters, he was in the brigade the entire time. So this was like his third or fourth job in the brigade. And he became the XO 
about six months before they deployed. And so Ginger and I, we just hit it off from the beginning. And I remember particularly after Dave gave a, a particular General Perkins, Colonel Perkins at the time, gave sort of a kind of a sending off speech before the brigade went over. And I just remember looking at Ginger and just us really connecting. And I suggested that we do a particular event and um, and we both agreed on that, and that just really sparked this kindred spirit of working together. We just kind of became soul sisters <laughs> or friends. Um, so I just I my my job I felt like was just to support Ginger and the brigade and really take care of all of the staff because my husband oversaw the staff, so their spouses. So I just wanted to befriend them and make them know that they were seen and valued and cared for. In the lead-up, what sort of issues were you dealing with as the FRG? Do you remember there was one instance where um, I remember one soldier, was he off your D? I can't remember, Ginger, but there was some angst because, remember, there in that September, there was a Colin Powell appeared before the UN, and things were starting to, and, and because of evidence of, at the time, that they felt was you know, evidence of weapons of mass destruction, it was very much gearing up towards a conflict. So the closer we got, I think the more anxious and nervous people got because it had been a long time since um, Desert Storm, Desert, Desert Shield and Desert Storm. I remember one couple in particular, there was a, a little bit of a crisis because they were very afraid. And I think there was a soldier that like did something, some harm to himself, like it was like a, a chest or drawer or something that he felt caused to fall on his foot so he wouldn't have to deploy. So there was definite fear building up. We we had a special conference. Um, let me back up for a second. So we, under the auspices of the chaplains at the, at the chapel, we hosted for whoever, this was voluntary, but whoever wanted to come to a prayer group for the brigade could come. And, and we gathered there. We had been doing that for quite a while. But we also hosted two special conferences, one in December for the brigade and one in March, where we had speakers that came in and, um, and they had experienced deployments and they, and they were giving us tools, both just for stress as well as emotional, mental health, but also um, spiritual tools um, for how to go through what we are about ready to go through in a healthy way as much as we could thrive instead of just survive. So there were some very intentional, bigger things that we did um, that I think was, I hope, I think prepared all of us for there was just this feeling of it's going to happen. How can we best be prepared for it? Because we didn't know what that would look like. Nobody had been all the way down to Baghdad, right? Nobody had done that. So we weren't really sure what what would happen. You mentioned Desert Storm and Desert Shield. And Ginger, in your intro, you talked about how long you had been married and when you met Dave. Was this the first deployment for either of you? This was the first deployment like this. The order said until mission accomplished until mission complete. So when they left, we did not know when they were coming back. But I actually, I felt confident. We, as, as our own little family, we did the things that we needed to do to feel as though we're sending David off in the right manner and we're going to feel good about it no matter what happened. We, we renewed our vows. We got a family photo taken 
I gave him, it's a mitzvah, it's a charm, and they break it in half. And it says, may the Lord watch between me and thee while we are separated one from another. He had half of it, I had half of it. I, so we tried to share these things with the family so then they could do what they needed. We had a notebook that the spouses, the families would prepare together. They would have everything that they needed. They knew where you know, birth certificates were, where car registrations were. We did have to share that the soldiers did need to give up some control and make sure that those spouses were set up for success. Yes. So when they left, we wanted those soldiers, I think, for when you asked um, how I felt, you know, or how Cindy felt, I mean, she was my battle buddy. I say I have four Fs. It was faith, family, fitness, and a friend. And so I needed all those, and she was my battle buddy. And we wanted all those other spouses to have the same thing. And it doesn't, I mean, faith, it could be meditation. It's just something that they need to settle on to calm themselves no matter what happens, no matter what, if war breaks out. Was this your first deployment? It was not. Um, my husband had been to, to Bosnia on a eight-month eight month deployment, which at the time was pretty scary. Um, we So... And there was definite danger there, but it was not to the degree that this would be. Setting up those binders for the spouses, right? For those of us that came in after 2003, this was old hat. We all got marched down to the legal office and did our wills and powers of attorney, and these binders were kind of standardized. But was there a learning curve for you? Because this really was the first time the Army had gone to war, with the exception of Afghanistan, but in 15 years. We had a basic guide, and... Cindy knows I like to be very organized, so I just would have my notebook, and then we worked with rear detachment. And we also had um, the HHC company commander spouse, Kathy Glazer, and we worked as a team. I always just felt, I mean, I might have an idea, but let's talk it through and see what everyone else has to bring to the table. So I think it was really, in our team, we did call it, we nicknamed it the dream team because... Everyone really worked together. We knew we knew where to find each other when we needed each other. When did the brigade deploy forward? They left in early September. Yeah, the first elements. And then the rest of by, right before Thanksgiving, by November, the rest of the brigade was there. And then starting in January, I think the rest of the division started to come over. What was that first Thanksgiving like without your spouse home? I actually have to caveat off of when you were saying that Eric was in Bosnia because Dave did go to Kosovo, so I kind of forgot that deployment. I don't know. They've been on so many deployments now, but I don't remember that one specifically, but I do know that my children, they only know going to the mess hall for Thanksgiving. They probably didn't know that other families had a turkey on their table <laughs> on Thanksgiving Day. Because in the military, you you go, our, our soldiers would go and serve. So I am sure that we were at the mess hall and we were with other families and soldiers for Thanksgiving. By the start of 2003, it's becoming pretty apparent that the United States is going to war with Iraq. Saddam Hussein's not going to back down, right? The drumbeat is, is picking right. up. What is going on in the FRG? What is going on in the rear D? What is going on in you as you see this tension rising? 
we just kept on going forward. I, I mean, I know that there was talk, and I wrote in my journal, the biological warfare that they were we were worried about yes, that. Yes, right. That is but true. we just kept on going forward. Up and I'll tell you when it changed a little. The needle moved. The needle moved when I had the TV on, and I saw David's vehicle. Well, they identified it as David's vehicle. They were filming from behind, and they're going across the desert. They're going across in the sand. And Colonel Hunt, who was a former, he was a Fox News talking head contributor, he said, that's Colonel Perkins, that's Dave Perkins. And that did get my heartbeat going. The children, we all just watched. I, I, they, they, again, were, they were kind of excited about it, but they really didn't show their nerves. They, they were very strong. We didn't really know unknown. what to expect. Yeah. It was unknown. However, the fact that that was really the first major conflict where you had embedded reporters that were reporting live, we were all just waiting and watching the movement, the progress from Kuwait up to Iraq. And, and it, it was interesting, exciting, you know, initially. So we were just, we were, what we were preparing, I think, I don't know, I don't think the nerves really hit until, until they entered Iraq, and then things were very uncertain. But I remember we still did, we just were super intentional, the people that I was friends with, and um, the group that put on the conference um, that, that supported it was a group from OCF, which was Officers Christian Fellowship, but that was, they were just the volunteers. But we had, I had people in my group that they would invite women over and their kids. They were FRG leaders, and they would invite one family over a week, like every Friday night. So people were being intentional and reaching, and we were trying to connect with one another because we wanted to, I think, connect and feel comfort by each other's presence because we didn't know what would happen. I think also we had we had different kind of pods and tribes mm -hmm. that we would get together. So on our street, we were lucky to live on post. On our street, we had all the brigade commander's spouses. So once the whole division was gone, mm -hmm. they were in the same boat as, as what I had, yeah, had been. We had a little group called Peach Posse. We would get together on Wednesdays. We would discuss what was going on, if anyone had some issues with any spouses or families, what we were doing. So we really would just connect and bounce things off of each other. So once the division joined us over in Kuwait, we started the line dancing there at the community club every Friday night. One of the other brigade commander spouses and I taught line dancing. But it, again, it was another way, another group that we could get the spouses together. So we really wanted to keep everybody at a high level of good energy. Did those steps count toward walk towards a Kuwait or walk towards Iraq? <laughs> we didn't have that type of um, monitoring system, but I think some people probably did. <laughs> had you taught line dancing before? Was this something in your wheelhouse or toolkit from prior? Or was this, we need to do something and this is my solution? Right. I love line dancing. And, and actually prior to the deployments, we had many pre-deployment balls. And... Everyone knew that I just love line dancing. And so once, again, you have to be genuine in what you do with people mm -hmm. and, and, and to enjoy it. So I enjoyed it. And our my other 
pal. She was great at, you know, calling out whatever moves we needed to do. So like you said, in your toolbox, you never know what's in your toolbox, but when you need it, you'll, you can find it in there. You just have to dig deep. There is a distinction in the military. You talked about the Peach Posse, the brigade commander's wives. Was there or did you run into issues with the division between officers and enlisted spouses? Not really with our group because we included everybody, especially with the, the FRG. FRG was an equalizer. That was just everybody. Everybody went and it doesn't didn't matter which rank, who you were, and we were all part of the family readiness group. And, um, and we did all kinds of activities together. Right. And Kathy Glazier, again, mm-hmm. she was great she, at reaching everybody. She called, she, she knew each family, so she would call the families and just see how they were doing. Again, each one had their group that they would check on. So, so at, at my level at brigade, it was our brigade coffee group. But then I was looking back at some notes that we were getting together with the brigade field grade spouses. So we had another social for them. Another time was the company, usually company commander or company FRG leaders. So we tried to include Mm -hmm. each level. And I I love doing ice cream socials. So I didn't didn't mind. It came from the heart. And it was easy to do. So just getting people together. And again, Cindy was there at all these different activities. I, I knew I could just rely on her. You both mentioned earlier seeing the news, mm-hmm. watching Colonel, you know, retired Colonel Hunt, the, the commentator, say, hey, that's Colonel Perkins going forward in the vehicle. The consumption of media today is different than it was in 2003. But the interaction with official information, right? Well, you, you mentioned earlier casualty collection plans, right? The casualty collection officer is supposed to come and tell you these things versus I've just seen what I suspect mm-hmm. is X on the news or on Facebook or whatever it would right. be now. How did you prepare the FRG and prepare yourselves for that? Well, once the division deployed, the division level and the brigade commander spouses, we all got together for meetings, another com- command steering meeting, and we really talked it through because we didn't know what we didn't know. And But when it started happening, we'd have these meetings. We said, now, if there's a casualty, if we hear about something, who are we going to call? So our garrison commander was that point man. So we had, of course, we would see it on TV prior to the casualty no- notification official casualty notification. Right, because of the embedded reporting. So I did keep, I had a notebook, and we called it Velvet Rock Messages. And so whenever I heard anything, I wrote it down. I would get a call from the garrison commander. I, again, then would call the rear detachment commander, and just we would just share notes. We had to be prepared because if spouses saw the same things that we saw, but it really was very quick. If any spouse needed anything, they had a little card, had Captain Enos's telephone number and Sergeant Fortenshell's telephone number. And they knew right away any they had any angst to call either Kathy, myself, Cindy, or a detachment. And that's how we kept mm-hmm. very calm. We never had any mm-hmm. sort of. The rumor mill didn't get activated in your no. in your brigade. 
you know, when when they were once they were over there, after you know, after things had kicked off, you'd always compare notes because the whole division was gone, right? Oh, what have you heard? And you know, when are they, you know, coming back? Because I think we all thought it would be over much sooner than it was. You know, we didn't realize we'd be in Iraq so many years um, as an army, but. Yeah, we didn't have anything before the conflict started. Right. No, no major and, issues. And also, when they were delayed, Colonel Sterling, so he was the chief of staff, mm-hmm. yes. he came back. Personally to talk to all the division spouses, yeah. And met at the theater. It was open to everyone. Yeah. He did you know, meet separately, but, yeah. and he and was there for questions. any questions. Again, they were right on top of everything. If any, if there was especially something like that when they were delayed, because I think our assumption as spouses was once we had taken Baghdad, once we we, we thought we'd be they'd be rotating out in May or June, but it went through the summer, and then and not till some of them not till early fall that they came back or till September. You're right. So that was so, but they did handle that really. It was really wonderful that Colonel Sterling came back and addressed everybody, and there were a lot of questions. When the invasion went from theoretical to actual, what went through your head, Cindy? Um, Uncertainty, anticipatory grief. Can you explain that? Yeah, anticipatory grief is a phrase that just means you emotionally are preparing for the eventuality of something that may happen. So starting from that point on for the rest of my husband's career, I, I knew when the latest was they could come and notify me that something had happened to my husband at night, and I knew when the earliest hours were in the morning. So I knew that after that, you know, or in between when I was asleep, I'd be okay. <laughs> but I, so it's this feeling of you don't know. They know what's happening over there with them. They know that they're okay or whatever's happened, but we don't know. And life just goes on. You have the children's responsibilities. You have all the, of their families but you really have no idea. Again, that was also 20 years ago when we have a lot less communication. You know, soldiers, we didn't, they didn't have, the satellite phones were rare and there were, you know, now soldiers have their cell phones with them, you know, and, and, and can talk to their spouses quite frequently. This was, you know, prior to that. So you, you, a lot of uncertainty, yeah, not knowing what tomorrow would hold. You mentioned communications back and forth, and I want to ask how often did you hear from your spouses? And how often did the average soldier's family hear from theirs? Once they invaded Iraq, the first time I heard David's voice was after the missile attack on the talk. And he called to say it was very bad because we had seen on the news clip missile attack on 2nd Brigade talk casualties and deaths and that's when I again just called Captain Enos for a detachment I called Cindy to come over to the house because I had not heard we decided we're going to keep the house open for people to come it was our own tactical operation my my living room and that is when David called and said it was very bad but we didn't know who was killed, um, who was injured. So what we decided 
was that we were going to meet that evening at the brigade headquarters, open it up and contact all the spouses. We had about 50 spouses and children meet there that evening. Because again, it wasn't as though we could share with them who was injured, but we needed to touch base with them, let them know we are there, we're doing the best we could, that we, we could. We didn't know for about seven days, every single day we had more casualty notifications because they had to go through, find the family members, notify them. But it took at least seven days to complete all those notifications. It was 16 casualties. We had three KIA and two reporters killed. David Zucchino in his book Thunder Run talks about this talk attack in Chapter 11. And to set it up for the listener real fast, the unit is in Baghdad or is about to breach into Baghdad. They've set up a command post and unexpectedly a surface-to-surface missile strikes that talk. You back in Georgia are seeing these news clips and this ambiguity. You mentioned Velvet Rock. Had this possibility of a mass casualty incident occurred to you ahead of time, or were you expecting onesies and twosies throughout the invasion? We had taken a class on mass casualties, but it was just mentioned. I remember them saying something about the number. So when I was, when this happened, and Captain Enos, they said it was mass casualties. I knew it was up in the teens, and that was not good. And was the thought, this is my husband? Or was the thought, these are my husband's soldiers? At the time, I was, I had just seen David on TV, and he was happy that he was in Baghdad. Yes, I think initially I thought it could be David, but now his mass casualties, it is my husband's soldiers as well. So until he called, until I heard his voice, Yes, unfortunately, we do always assume that it is our it is our soldier. You've both mentioned kids. How did you prepare your kids for the invasion, for the war, for this day as it's playing out in your living room, in your house? Well, my kids were four. My youngest was four, my daughter. Um, and the middle one was seven, and then my oldest son was 10. So honestly, I didn't... I didn't have the type of conversations that maybe Ginger would have with her kids because they were older. Um, but when, the day that it happened, I was actually we were I was getting my kids ready for school. The two older ones, my daughter was staying home. Um, actually, she she was a preschooler, so she wasn't going to school that day. But I had a doctor's appointment and had actually set up a friend to come watch my my daughter. And they were in the kitchen, and my, I had a friend, an Air Force spouse friend who called and she said, Cindy, turn on the news. There's something about 2nd Brigade. So I went in the other room and they were eating their breakfast. I shut the door and the crawler said that that the 2nd Brigade talk had been hit and that there were, I can't remember the specific names of the news show I saw, but there were multiple, there were multiple casualties. And I knew that my husband as Brigade XO was in charge of the talk. I knew he was there. And so I dropped to my knees and I started crying and I started praying and kind of pacing and knowing, knowing that in a few moments I had to go back out and get the kids out, out the door. And 
Um, I got them out the door and I I can't remember if they were still at home or not. Maybe it was after they left that Ginger called and she said to come over and I said, that's great. I will come over there. I'll cancel my doctor's appointment. My friend will watch um, my daughter. But I didn't tell my kids about the attack until their dad came back and returned from the deployment because my youngest, Meredith, who was four, was crying nearly almost every night that her dad was gone. So I just, I knew that I couldn't let that out. And they would talk about it, you know, as siblings. And I just, I couldn't do that to her. She was just already really scared. So they didn't find out till their dad came back. That's how we dealt with it. So our children were older. Cassandra was 16 and Chad was about 13. When they went off to school that day, I was so proud of them. And I was thinking, oh, Dave's going to be so proud of them because... They just went off with a good attitude when they came home that afternoon. I mean, they were used to people being at the house, but this time they knew when they walked in, they knew something had happened. And I told them what had happened, and immediately Cassandra said, what can I do to help? So, um, I mean, it was such a hectic day, and that night she did help out with the FRG meeting. And I did not realize, though, how our son, it did affect him that he, he a lot of times would go out bike riding just to kind of just be out there and riding his bike and trying not to think about that his dad's at war. Because I think the, the neighborhood children were all talking right. about Sorry. what was yes. going on. Mm-hmm. And at that right. age, I didn't know that. While my daughter, because she was older, she was able, she and I just communicated all the time. We had her girlfriends over. So it was in in easier dialogue um, that evening prior to going to the FRG meeting. I honestly told Cassandra, I said, I am just very weak right now. I need to, I need to rest for a few minutes before we go. And she just took care of you know, people at the door, phone calls. Mm-hmm. She kind of was your screener. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In the attack, the company lost three soldiers. It loses two embedded reporters, and it has about a dozen more wounded. But the obligations, certainly for you as spouses back on the rear detachment, doesn't end when the casualties are evacuated from Kuwait or to Kuwait. How did you find strength to carry on and keep providing the support that your families needed, you needed internally, and the rest of the FRG was expecting? Well, at that time, we didn't know that it was going to take seven days to complete the the casualty notification. We took it a day at a time, and again, we relied on each other. At different levels, they took care of those, the soldiers and the families that were back to make sure they checked on them and took care of them. Cindy was making a meal, brought over to a meal to Private Miller's um, mother that was there. Kathy Glazier visited other families. Cindy and I went to see the Sergeant Major. S3 Sergeant Major's spouse, and he was injured, yeah. He was very, yeah, very seriously burned and injured, brought a meal over. I also was attending some meetings, those senior level meetings, because we were then preparing for a memorial for the whole post, because not just only our unit was having casualties, other units. Unfortunately, our unit, by the time we had the memorial just a couple weeks later, we had eight soldiers 
the most of any of the brigades. So we were trying to figure out how can we honor these soldiers because families now are coming to the post. We came up with what about having memorial trees, planting trees, putting a little plaque there. So it was someplace because for those families, they will be they will forever think of Second Brigade, Third Infantry Division as their unit because that is the unit that their soldier died with. So that is what we did. We had that planned out. So I think my days were really consumed with meetings, thinking ahead. And again, we we just shared responsibilities. We would check in every day to see who was doing what, making sure no no one was left out of the loop. We had, during that week, we had a, um, a coffee for our brigade. It was already scheduled, but just getting people together mm-hmm. and being able to see them, talk to them, try to calm fears. But again, it was really taking it day by day. And, and honestly, it was keeping up our energies by eating right, trying to get our sleep, being kind to ourselves. Were the concerns that were brought up at that coffee by the, the families different than ones you had seen previously? Yes. Um, there were spouses that would grab my shoulder. At the FRG say, meeting. At the, the FRG night of the meeting. Attack. Yeah. And right at the coffee and just ask, do you know, was it my soldier? Is my soldier alive? Is he injured? And it would break our hearts because we had women there with young children and um, the emotions. I mean, they're shaking. And I would wonder, you know, they're going home. I, wanna, I hope that they are, you know, eating right and trying to, you know, doing as best as they can, getting help. I mean, I knew how weak we were feeling as well, but at least we had a friend that we could, mm-hmm. you know, rely on and talk to. Ginger, you mentioned that your husband called and you heard his voice and you knew he was okay. Cindy, did you have a similar experience? I did, but it happened later. So I, I had left my house once the kids went off to school and I had the babysitter for my daughter, Meredith. And I walked to Ginger's house. We all lived on post, so it was like a two-minute walk, which was very convenient. And we we got there, and we all um, we just we comforted one another because, look, there's you know people are really searching for hope, right? When these type of things happen, a friend and I we were looking up verses of comfort um, from scripture. Um, And so we were trying to occupy ourselves, and people were coming in and out. My father, about an hour or two after I called, um, maybe in the first couple hours, he, well, before that, I had told, uh, called my in-laws. They were at a, they had just left us, actually, at Fort Stewart. They were visiting, and they were in some campground in Louisiana, and I had to tell them that we didn't know about Eric and about the talk attack. But my father called, and his voice cracked up on the phone. And he said, and I had spoken to them already, and he said, Cindy, he said, I just heard a reporter, and he just quoted Lieutenant Colonel Eric Wesley, which means he must be alive. And so that was my indicator. So I was happy but, you know, uncertain because I hadn't spoken to him. And then probably in about 
an hour or two after that, prior to one o'clock in the afternoon, um, there was an unknown call, but on my phone. And I walked out of Ginger's house and it was crackling. I think it was Eric's voice. I wasn't sure, but the phone call dropped and Ginger and I were just talking about this today. And I looked at her and I think tears were starting to come down my face. And then he called back and it was still a very terrible connection, but I could hear that he was okay. He said, I'm okay, but you're going to have a lot to deal with. And that was pretty much all I heard. And we said goodbye and I love you. So I so I was thankful he was okay. But I, we were so uncertain about how many of our friends and how many of the soldiers were affected at that point. This was really for us though, like as a culture, as the military, as the army family, this was just the beginning. Because this then was then, you know, we had some forays right into Afghanistan for sure, particularly, I think, 82nd Airborne and others. But that that invasion into Iraq started the back-to-back deployments for then 10 to 20 years. So they were home and they were gone. So what happened with us is we, the Perkins actually, they changed out in June. So that was a real shocker for the unit. You know, when you have, you know, they were... Truly, the trust that was built was because of Colonel and Mrs. Perkins and their care and their leadership. But when they left, we kind of felt like, oh, what's happening? (laughs) All of our people are leaving. A lot of people were changing out of command and position. So we were still there. We got a brand new command brigade commander in theater. They didn't. They were wonderful people, but they didn't know us. They didn't know the unit. They didn't know what we had been through. And this was, and I think the army adjusted how they would change command um, with deployments after that. So that was very difficult. But for us, we left Fort Stewart in the next, within the next eight months after he came back and we moved to a new post that was deploying. And so he had only, he had 15 months between that deployment and the next one when he was in battalion command. So for it, for me, it was the be- it was preparation for what would happen then for years to come and many memorials to attend and taking care of families while taking care of your own family. And, and so it was, it was quite a balancing act. And I, I don't, I still think we as army families are recovering from all of that, the back-to-back deployments and, and the effect that it had on us. Ginger, when Dave left command and when you left the command team by extension, what was the feeling? It was one of the most awful feelings I ever had. Dave came home that one evening, the 21st of June, and I couldn't even really be elated in front of anyone because no one else's husbands were coming home. We felt terrible. It was it was awful. I didn't want to leave. I didn't want to leave my friends. But again, once they change command, you do pass that on that baton on, and you do have to leave, and you have to leave graciously. And um, so, I mean, other than you know, really just keeping an eye on the news, you do have to cut those ties. You have to allow that next command team you to try to. Detach. to um, have a successful command. Yes, it was. It was the. It was the worst feeling, ever. Cindy, you said this was the first of eventually many deployments and many memorial services. What was that first memorial service like? So, we had maybe about five of the eight families at that first. It was a memorial, but not always like the memorial services that they have now. But 
in the um, in the spouse group, they usually have the little unit pins, and we would give these pins to the spouses. Well, I wanted to give something to those moms, and so I put together a little pin and our motto. So it's Send Me, Second Brigade, and it's Isaiah 6-8. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, Here I am, send me. So I wanted them to understand the significance of this pin. So greeting those families, I mean, that did change the way I, I tried to honor and remember Gold Star families, mm-hmm. that always to include them mm-hmm. and, and really just listen to them. They want to tell you their story about yes. their soldier. I think one of the other things was um, resiliency, mm-hmm. that because at other units, you're, you've, we as senior spouses, you're not mandated to do anything, but I wanted to be at every single memorial service. And it does take a lot out of you, but I felt there was no better place, no, no better place for me to be, but to be that where the families were and to give them support. You've had the hindsight of 20 years now almost to process what happened and what you did both before, during, and after. What advice would you give to that soldier's family that's about to join or that's about to deploy? I would encourage them as much as possible to build relationships with their army community and their mili- and their unit, to get to know them um, so that they can have a battle buddy to rely on. Um, it's not just for their own benefit so that they can possibly also encourage somebody else too that might be needing encouragement or, or, or a friend. And, and to not shy away from anything that's related to the unit i think i think some t- i think the interesting dynamic now in this generation is that life is a little bit maybe possibly more separate look it's may maybe may might be viewed as just their job but it really might be a worthy of considering that this is something that our family is part of this might be a family this is this is who we are as a family and and it is the entire family the spouse the children so that you're you're supporting one another you're all in but you can also i think really lift one another up in the unit but the but the stronger your relationships are before home deployment i think the it equips you and enables you to go through the deployment not just somehow but hopefully in a positive way does that go back to the intentionality that you talked about earlier in building that? And whether it's something formal, like that we would do special, you know, we had conferences, activities, line dancing, groups to be a part of, or whether it's informally. But I, I think that really does make a difference because we had the relationship built. We, we knew each other. We trusted one another. So in a crisis, I'll be there in two minutes. And we knew one another and, and what our skill sets were and, and, and who to rely on. But if you don't have that, a, just a, a basic foundation of a relationship, it's, it's difficult to, to, I think, trust others and, and really could, which could be one of the most horrific times of your life. You don't know. So I, I think that 
building trust is critical for them in the heat of battle, but it's also critical for families that are in the rear too. I would say also that we wanted the families to want to be with us. You can't make them want to be with us. We wanted them to want to. So I think we we actually ask them a lot of times, well, what is it that you want to do? What do you enjoy doing? And we tried to build in different activities right. that, that they could go to with their families. Even like with the, our young son, because for a whole year, it, we didn't have another male influence. So when we were together, Captain Enos would throw football or do something so at least Chad would have that male influence. But again, I mean, I did take Chad there. So we did need those spouses to also have that buy-in. Well, it's been said that we enlist soldiers and we retain families. So I want to thank you both for helping us understand the family perspective of combat. Cindy, Ginger, thanks for being here. Thank you for having us. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Spear. The Spear is produced by the Modern War Institute at West Point. What you hear in each episode are the views of the participants and don't represent the position of West Point, the Army, or the U.S. government. Be sure you're subscribed to The Spear on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app, where you can also give the podcast a rating or leave a review, which helps us reach new listeners. And if you aren't yet following MWI on social media, please find us on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Thanks again for listening.